Well, there's cryptocurrencies as uh, reducers of transaction friction and cryptocurrencies as investments. I don't believe in cryptocurrencies as investments. I think they're speculations. Again, going back to Howard Marks, Howard uh, has a great saying that unless something has a cash flow, it cannot be evaluated as an investment. If it has no cash flow, it's a speculation. It's a gamble. And people don't invest in cryptocurrencies. They gamble on cryptocurrencies, which is why we don't include them in our portfolios, nor do any of the premier university endowments, the best managed pools of capital in the world, include them. So, But that being said, I think that the more friction you take out of a system, the better that it operates. And who's to say that that uh, MasterCard and Visa should earn 2.9% of every transaction. I think cryptocurrencies can play a tremendous role in that. One of the sneaky similarities with all the guests we have on the podcast, they have a ton of education, but that's not it. It's not the PhD. It's not the master's. It's that they continue learning throughout their life. And I think that's the key. You're either learning or dying. I'm really excited to tell you guys about our new partner, Brilliant.org, because their mission is to help everyone, whether a hobbyist or hardcore pro, continue learning, up-leveling themselves, and actually enjoying the process. Whether it's learning Python, taking on calculus, differential equations, you want to build neural nets, look into quantum computing, explore the physics of space. They have all that and more. It is the place to go to for science, math, and computer science and having fun in the process. One of my biggest goals with this podcast is to help inspire more people to be awesome and build the things they want to see in the world. Be that change. That's what Gandhi said, and I think you can do it. But a lot of times you need the skills to do it. And that is the entirety of Brilliant's mission, to give individuals the tricks of the trade to accomplish incredible things. To support the podcast, seriously, go to brilliant.org slash disruptors. Learn more about them. You can sign up for free. And the first 200 people that go to that link, you get 20% off the annual premium subscription. If you want to keep learning math, science, computer science to increase your career skills, to help you build that website, to help you do whatever it is that you want to do in the world, brilliant.org is a brilliant way to do it, pun intended, from a great company with a great mission. And support us by supporting them. Brilliant.org slash disruptors for more details and to save 20%. Are you going organic, keto, paleo, some type of diet for incredible performance? You want the healthiest foods delivered to your doorstep fast and easy? Well, you should check out today's show sponsor, Thrive Market, the best organic online grocery store in the States. They've got gluten-free lentils and breads, chemical-free cleaners, organic coconut milk, all at up to 50% off delivered to your door with a subscription to Thrive Market's awesome online health store. Listeners get a bonus 25% off their first order, up to 20 bucks when you use our link, disruptors.fm slash thrive. Check it out. They've got just about everything at rock bottom prices for, for best in class quality, regardless of how you're eating. And I know I switch it up. I'm sure you guys do as well. Disruptors.fm slash thrive for more details. I spent all day today writing. I love coffee, but I hate jitters. I was at Starbucks, and I'm a little bit bouncing off the walls. That's why I'm pumped to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, Four Sigmatic's Lion's Mane Blend. If you haven't tried Lion's Mane or the other awesome mushrooms that this Finnish company is putting out there, I definitely recommend it. Between the podcast, books, startup coaching, and life as a dad, I need to be switched on and creative in a big way. And Four Sigmatic's proprietary blend, it's got only 40 milligrams of caffeine, 
for creative, natural, drug-free productivity to power your day without the crash, side effects, or addiction. And you know what? The flavor, it's awesome. Listeners, if you go to disruptors.fm slash FS, you'll save 10% off anything from Four Sigmatic. They've got some incredible superfood blends. I recommend checking out their Four Mushroom blend as well. And you know what? You'll get free shipping anywhere in the US. Again, that's disruptors.fm slash FS. Use offer code disruptors to save 10% and to take it to the next level. Tim Ferriss recommends this to everybody. Jonathan Levy, one of the awesome guests we had, our Superhuman Academy all-star, he loves it as well. And it's powering elite performers like you everywhere. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. It's rare to have someone revolutionize two industries. Today's guest, Andy Ratcliffe, did just that. One of the original founders of Benchmark Capital, the Benchmark Capital, the preeminent venture capital firm in Silicon Valley or worldwide with investments in Uber and just about everyone else, is on the program today. He's also the co-founder and executive chairman, previously CEO, of Wealthfront, an automated investment service that helps everyday folks get the advice and effectiveness of a wealth advisor at fractional, fractional management fees. I use these guys to help invest some money. I'm not going to recommend you do because we don't give financial advice, but it's a great way if you want to have a little bit of exposure to the markets without having to worry about doing it all yourself. Andy's frequently been named to the Forbes Midas list of the top tech investors, teaches courses on technology entrepreneurship at Stanford's Graduate School of Business, is a trustee for the University of Pennsylvania, and is also a board member of Damon Runyon's Cancer Research Foundation, which is a big, big push for him and his wife to fight and rid the world of cancer and other big problems, hence his career in venture capital. Today, we discuss how to win at investing despite all the contradictory advice, where automation is headed in regard to jobs, how the financial industry screws you sideways and rigs the game, Andy's thoughts on blockchain and what's the future look like. How venture capital is changing with the rise of SoftBank and other mega funds. The massive problem with science and biotech research today and how Andy's trying to solve it. And thoughts on regulating the big tech monopolies and tech cycles in general. Andy's someone who sat on all sides of the table, is highly, highly respected, and is someone that I know you guys are going to love listening to. So without further ado, I give you Andy Ratcliffe. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. So Andy, for someone with a career like yours, I think the best place to start is, what's the biggest letdown or failure you've had? What's the moment that's really gotten you down? You know, it's funny, having spent 25 years in venture capital, I developed amnesia. It's a critical capability to succeed in that field because... Success is not a function of eliminating the losers. It's finding bigger winners. So I literally don't think about my failures. And you think I know that sounds like a cop out, but it's a really critical part of being mentally healthy as a venture capitalist. And as a quarterback and as a pitcher and as really anyone with a lot of pressure. Perhaps. Yeah. I, I can't speak to them. I can only tell you about venture capital. 
and venture capital you have done. Founding Benchmark, why? What was the point? What was the purpose? Why did you go out and do it? Well, my firm and another firm were going through a generational transition. I was a partner of a, a very successful venture firm called Merrill Pickard Anderson and Iyer. And there was another top five firm that was going through the same thing called TVI. Each of the two firms had their founding partners uh, reaching the point where they were going to retire. And that meant that the remaining partners could have either taken those franchises forward or we could wind the funds down and become free agents. In both cases, we chose the latter. So two of us from Merrill Pickard teamed up with one of the partners from TVI, one of the entrepreneurs we had backed at Merrill Pickard and a fifth individual who was a friend of the partner at TVI to form Benchmark. And of course, you had to do that just to get a better brand name as well. They had uh, they had quite the names for the venture capital funds back in the day. Well, it was pretty typical to name the firm after the partners. And that worked really well for the partners whose names were on the door. But it was really bad for the partners who name, whose names were not on the door. You Because entrepreneurs always wanted to work with the decision maker. And it just created that much more pressure to try to work with one of those names. So when we started Benchmark, we wanted a name that did not include our names. So you didn't have to deal with the John Doerr problem of being the guy without being on the, the head. I don't think John Doerr ever had a problem. He's the best venture capitalist who ever lived. What makes someone an incredible venture capitalist? So for our listeners, some of them are investors, some of them aren't. Some are that are in this space, some aren't. Walk me through the space and then what it takes to become an incredible investor and build some. Well, I think first and foremost, it's a nose for what can be big. The amazing thing about John is he did not let anything get in the way of the decision about whether or not this company could be big. If the founders were difficult, if the price was high, all of those paled in comparison to could it be big? And I think that he had an amazing facility to judge that. Do you think we're suffering from over bigness today? So you see a lot of the big tech players, they are becoming the the Googles, the Facebooks, Apple, they're becoming they're becoming monopolies if we really if we really point it out. Do you think that's a problem? Do you think that's an evolution? Do you think it's uh just a cycle? Just a cycle. You know, IBM was a monopoly. Microsoft was a monopoly. Google today acts very much like Microsoft did in the 80s and early 90s. They're a monopoly. So these things come in waves. It's nothing new. Do they come in waves that have to be regulated? That's a very difficult and long debate because you know, Amazon is an example you could say is a monopoly, but it benefits the consumer. Traditional monopolies didn't benefit the consumer because the monopolist could charge an unfair economic rent for what they did because they were the sole supplier and they would take advantage of that position. That's not the case with Amazon. Actually, they use their position to offer better deals to consumers. And this has sparked a tremendous debate about what constitutes a monopoly. And your thoughts? I'm you gonna, know, I'm going to push you. Uh, it's not something that I actually think about. It. It's it's almost impossible to compete with with Amazon, which I think is unfair. But you could have said the same thing about IBM and and Microsoft and Google. And 
guess what? People are competing with those three companies. People are competing with those three companies. So speaking of big shakers, what are some of the the bigger hits and bigger misses you had while working at Benchmark? I personally or the firm? We'll go with you personally and then we'll go with the firm. We can have a little bit of a highlight and a low light reel. Okay. Well, let's see. Uh, I backed a company called Juniper Networks, which went on to build a multi-billion dollar business in uh, networking equipment. I actually came up with the idea to start a company called Equinix, which is a a network neutral hosting facility. And uh, Equinix is at least a $5 billion revenue business today and worth a a lot of money. Uh, Going way, way back, I was an investor in America Online. So I've been fortunate to be associated with a number of companies that have reached really significant scale. Great venture capitalists evaluate other venture capitalists on how many companies did they back that grew into big companies, not how many grew into big valuations. Because you can get lucky on valuation due to timing, but you don't get lucky if you back a number of companies that grow to be multi-hundred million dollar or billion dollar businesses. And what about how you evaluate the economics? So for instance, let's go elephant in the room. Uber, Will they mm-hmm. make money if they don't pull off self-driving? That's a question I know I have, and I know a lot of people have. This is something I've been writing about a bit in the past, and I'm curious to see your thoughts on something that can grow really fast, but the the underlying business behind it. You know, I think that the unit economics actually work, but the the desire to grow more quickly than natural uh, lead them to lose money. You know, for many, many years, the, the, my favorite saying about Amazon is they could make money if they wanted to. And I think that's why they were valued so highly. I think the same goes for Uber or other businesses that are prioritizing growth over profits, that you want to have a dominant market position. I think that the biggest mistake that Uber made in hindsight was in their desire not to have their drivers be employees for benefits purposes. They weren't able to tie them up, and therefore, they did not benefit from the traditional network effect benefit of being a a winner-takes-all market. And as drivers are able to go back and forth between Lyft and Uber, it does not allow Uber to be a a winner-take-all market. In every other network effect market I know of, the winner-takes-all. So I think that's the unfortunate part of the Uber business. I want to get into that gig side in a second. But for instance, I think the Amazon Uber comparison is not that great. Because if you give me 10 or $20 million, I can spin up a competitor to Uber in a certain city. It's local network effects. It's not global. Amazon is much more of a, a global in terms of e-commerce. It's all of the US. I'm not sure that's true. I'm loyal to Uber wherever I go in the world. Whereas I try to use Lyft to avoid getting a monopoly because then they'll have monopoly pricing. But that's not rational. So that might be true for you. One of the lessons that I teach my students at Stanford Graduate School of Business is never project your own personal taste onto consumers. That's where as a venture capitalist and an evaluator of an employer, you make the biggest mistakes. The, the but typically, time. but typically they aren't. And that's where access to capital can turn into an advantage. That's not the kind of advantage I ever want to pursue. As a matter of fact, when I got started in the venture business, the, one of the first lessons I was taught 
was you avoid businesses that gain benefit from capital, that you look for businesses that gain benefit from intellectual property. And that's why venture, premier venture has been offered such great returns is that you replace capital with intellectual property and get leverage on your money to get much higher returns. I think companies like SoftBank are completely screwing that formula. Yeah, what do you up. think what do you think about that? Masa comes in with a hundred billion dollar fund. How does that change the game? I think it can totally screw up the game. And I think it's one of the biggest threats to the entire environment. Do you think and I think I don't think anyone benefits from it. Do you think companies should or need to still go public? We're kind of getting to an environment where there is so much private capital that these companies are staying private longer and longer. And some of them are getting away with shenanigans, but other ones, you can build an incredible business based off of something without ever going public. What are your For thoughts? For a while, I think you must go public. So this is where I, I'm an old schooler, and I think being public is, is critical to the long-term success of a business. And let me give you an, an example. One of the courses that I teach at Stanford is on the topic of how large companies innovate. One of my teaching partners for another course, a fellow named Mark Leslie, who built a very successful company called Veritas, he explained how companies that continue to do well over decades are only able to do that because they reinvent themselves. You can think of every business of having an arc of success that it's, you can think of it as an upside down U on a curve where the X axis is time and the Y axis is success. So you can think of the company doing very, very well, then it plateaus and then it declines. Now, for some businesses, that, that arc of success might be five years. Others, it might be 50 years. But what I can tell you with great confidence is in order to sustain growth, you need to layer these upside down U's on top of each other. And so this is how I define great management for a large company. Were they able to reinvent the business and layer on new businesses? Apple's a great example with the, uh, the iPod and then the iPhone and the iPad and the Apple Watch. Adobe has done it six times. Oracle did it many times. Most of the great companies that you know of were able to reinvent themselves and layer new businesses on. For this course that I teach, my teaching partners and I did a bunch of research and we're actually surprised to find that more than 95% of the reinventions that we've observed came through acquisition. Now, these were not little acquisitions. These were high-priced acquisitions of new spaces. You can think of uh, Facebook with Instagram and WhatsApp. Now, the only way you can afford to make those large acquisitions is with a public currency. So if you don't go public, you can't do it no matter how much money Masa gives you. And the problem is that if you don't make these acquisitions, you start running out of growth and then you can't go public when you want to because the single most important uh, variable in the uh, determination of a stock price is the revenue growth. We actually did some research that we published on the Wealthfront blog about this. So if your growth starts to wane, you're screwed. So I think that the entire Masa model is 
flawed. What about the long-term stock exchange? So one of the one of the issues that I have and a lot of people have with public markets is they have such short-term time horizons for what they're optimizing for. CEOs, companies are optimizing on a quarter-by-quarter quarter basis. I would say shitty CEOs have short-term time horizons. Great CEOs couldn't care less. If they can last long. But why can't they? Oftentimes they're getting they're getting booted off the boards. I've seen some interesting polls that say a lot of CEOs, something like sixty percent, would go for something that has short term gains now versus but much longer long term. That's gains. because they suck. So the the course I was telling you about about large companies innovating, we used to call innovation in the non-founder CEO. And it's now called the ambidextrous CEO because in order to succeed over the long term, you have to both uh, optimize your business and explore new businesses. Unfortunately, most hired CEOs spend all of their time optimizing and very little time exploring because they lack the confidence of a founder CEO that if their exploration fails, they worry about getting fired. If they set proper expectations with their boards, they're not going to get fired. You know, it's, it's funny that I think that uh, founder CEOs are overconfident. And that's what leads them to be willing to explore and take these big chances with acquisitions. But you don't have to be a founder to do that. You just have to be confident. Reed Hastings, as an example, was not the founder of Netflix, but he acts like he was the the founder of Netflix. You know, when he tried to separate the DVD business from the streaming business in order to make sure the streaming business could succeed because he thought that was going to be the better long-term business. His stock price went down 85%. He wasn't fired because he set an expectation for his board before he did it. And as a matter of fact, he even raised money when his stock went down 85%. It was the smartest thing that he could have done. How do we get so more this is a like fa- that? So I think this is a horribly false narrative that my favorite CEOs, when I was a venture capitalist, ran their public companies like private companies. The problem with that is your stock is highly volatile. But who cares? You're not managing the company for the person who bought your stock yesterday. You're trying to build the best long-term value for the business. That's how I try to run mine. Employee options and having employees see the fluctuations? That's leadership. So to be a great CEO, you have to be a great leader. So you don't think that extending out the time horizon for trading between stocks would be beneficial? I think it would be beneficial for a shitty CEO. Okay, fair enough. So you brought you brought up earlier the the gig economy question. Where do you see the future of work headed as we do have these evolving trends happening both here and abroad? You know, my investment idol is a guy named Howard Marks, and he's as famous for his returns. He's the founder of a distressed debt firm called Oak Tree Capital as he is for his quarterly letter uh, to his investors. And uh, one of Howard's really big points is that no one is good at predicting the future. And so you shouldn't try. So whenever somebody asks him to predict something about financial markets, his answer, which I love, is wait a second while I ask my taxi driver. So I'm sorry, but I'm going to invoke that same clause with you. I have no clue. That's not a venture capitalist job. That's an entrepreneur's job. And that's why they make the big bucks. Speaking of being an entrepreneur and making the big bucks, why do you want to disrupt banking? Because it sucks. It does suck. So I didn't want to. I sort of got into it by accident. But I I actually did it because I was inspired by the social good that could come from it. 
So banking does suck. How much of that is regulations? How much of that is just incumbency? How much of that is crony capitalism? You know, it's very funny. Well, one of the things that I've learned about regulations in the banking space is that consumers do not matter at all to regulators. This was really quite a surprise to me that regulators in the banking world are focused on the stability of the financial system. They do not want banks to go out of business. So they're never going to encourage banks to share more of the economics with the consumer because that would put them at greater financial risk. So I don't think it has anything to do with uh, regulators. I think it has to do with the fact that the culture of banks is to put their income statement and balance sheet before or ahead of the consumer's income statement and balance sheet. And they're not really good product people. They're not good technologists. I mean, look at Chase. They spent a huge amount of money building a consumer financial app that they just shut down because it was so bad. So they're not good at innovating on product. So they just stay with the status quo and take advantage of their market positions. And they definitely take advantage of those positions. There's quite and they definitely take advantage of those positions. There's quite a yeah. bit of fees. I like what you guys are doing with Wealthfront. But speaking of destabilizing the financial markets, do you ever get at all worried about the number of index funds and how much money is getting put into them? That's a superb question and one that's come up quite a bit because I've heard that the fellow who was profiled in the big short, Michael Burry, is now focused on index funds as his next opportunity. Uh, our chief investment officer at Wealthfront is a fellow named Bert Malkiel, who's an emeritus professor at Princeton and actually the inventor of the index fund. Uh, he wrote a book about 45 years ago that I think is the most important book in investing called A Random Walk Down Wall Street. And it was most famous for a chapter uh, that described an experiment that Bert ran where he had a bunch of chimpanzees throw darts at a Wall Street Journal stock page, and he compared their performance to professional investment managers. And guess who won over the long term? The monkeys. The monkeys. So uh, Bert made this point that you would be far better served buying an index of the overall stock market than trying to pick the ind individual securities. And uh, it took a long time for passive investing to catch on, but it's now growing very rapidly. I think it represents about 35% of the U.S. equities mutual fund market. And Bert wrote a blog post for us about at what point did he think the market would become too saturated with index funds to cause problems. And, and his guess would be 90 to 95% market share, because even with 5% market share, you know, that's still $2 trillion of active management to price individual securities. So again, I don't think that there's any risk to the financial system from index funds. I think that's an argument made by the active management industry to try to spread fear, uncertainty, and doubt because they're fighting a horribly losing battle. If I was going to play devil's advocate, I would also say you're so you're somewhat incentivized to look at it from the other perspective. I definitely agree with you, but I do see the potential where you have some type of dampening effect of index funds 
more or less more or less congregating everyone together into something. I think in general they're very helpful, but they can be very volatile if, when, if and when things break. You know that, and for that, that's been an argument made by a number of people, and there's no research to support that point. There's no academic research that show, has shown that ETFs or index funds have increased volatility. I actually think it has shown the opposite. And by the way, this is not something that I'm promoting because I've got a company. This is this is based on academic research. It's just clear. And by the way, I'm an active management guy to my core. I was a venture capitalist. So, uh, but I've come around to the point of view because it's just so powerful that over the long term, exceptionally few investors are able to consistently outperform the market. And uh, I heard a great explanation for it, if you'd like me to share that with you. Yeah, go for it. So another one of our advisors is a guy named Charlie Ellis. Charlie was the founder of a consultancy to the financial services world called Greenwich Associates. He was also the chairman of the Yale Endowment, which is probably the best managed large pool of capital in the world. And he's taught at Harvard and Yale business schools. And Charlie is is really quite glib. The uh, the analogy that he draws is to uh, is the uh, financial markets to a game of poker. Thirty years ago, when Peter Lynch was in his ascendancy at, at Fidelity, promoting active management, you know most of the money that was invested in the U.S. equity markets was in the hands of individuals. A small percentage was in the hands of institutions. Now, individuals make a very consistent mistake, and there's been a tremendous amount of research done on this as well, and that is they buy when the market goes up and they sell when the market goes down. Now, that's the opposite of what you should do, but that's what feels right. It doesn't feel good to invest when the market's go, going down or to, be, or to be selling when the market's going up. Nothing about good investing feels right. That's the problem with it. But uh, individuals consistently make this mistake, and good institutional investors would basically take the other side of that trade. And and uh, there's a company called Dalbar that's done research on this for 40 years, and they found that this this bad behavior or stupid behavior costs the average individual investor anywhere between one and a half and three and a half percent per year. Well, that's an uh, if you take the opposite side of the trade, that allows you to outperform. So you can think of it as an expert poker player was sitting at a poker table with a bunch of, of rubes who didn't know how to play poker. Well, fast forward 20 or 30 years, and the vast majority of the money is now in the hands of institutional investors. So almost everyone populating that poker table is also very good. And it's really hard to win consistently if everyone around the table is really, really good. And to add off of that, I would say in blackjack, when they're counting cards, they're only adding a couple percent to their actual probability of winning. It is a, it's a great analogy. And so th that's why I love Charlie's analogy. He's, he's written a bunch of investment books, and they're all so simple, yet so powerful. Yeah, you pretty much just don't want to do anything. And that's the best move almost always. It, you know, Bert likes to say that you can't outperform the market, so you shouldn't try. Instead, you should buy index funds and focus on the three things over which you do have control, and that is diversification, 
He believes the only free lunch in investing, uh, minimizing fees and minimizing taxes. And that's what we basically have automated in our investment platform. What do you see in the future of automation, not just for tools, but for jobs? God, we're not even, we're in the first or second inning of that. And I think that's because of the importance uh, that data will play. So here's a great example, our financial planning. Uh, We do it all in software. There are no financial planners. And that's because data does a better job than experts. Again, this has been proven time and time again. And so what, uh, what we do is we ingest first and third party data. Our average client links up six and a quarter financial accounts to us with, uh, with their, so we get that information with their permission. We would never share it with anyone else. And then we take that data. We combine it with third party data to give them insights. So for example, uh, we can tell you how much home you can afford to buy based on your financial situation, looking at your actual financial data, not what you think it is, which is what you do in an interview with a certified financial planner. And then we know uh, what banks will lend you and we can tell you, therefore, what you can afford to buy. If you tell us the, the zip code or the neighborhood in which you want to live, well, we know from Zillow and Redfin what homes cost in that neighborhood. And we can tell you exactly what kind of home you can buy in that neighborhood. And then we know from government data the rate at which each neighborhood is appreciating. So we can tell you what you might be able to afford in two or five years to be able to give you a far better idea of what you can do with your financial life than what you could do on your own or even with a financial planner because financial planners don't have access to that data. As a caveat, I want to add and also get your thoughts on this, Andy. If you're thinking about buying a home, I might wait a few years because it sure looks like the market's about to pop. And again, this is another critical thing. You can't time the market. You can't time the market. We are higher than 2008 levels, though. So it I would doesn't be a little ma- worried. So that's the problem is, again, the research shows people suck at timing the market. Even institutions are terrible at timing the market. Okay, let me add a caveat. Do not buy a house if you're not going to stay there for a while. Well, I think that's good advice because unless you're going to stay there for a while and it's going to appreciate to the point that it more than makes up for the commission you're likely to pay when you sell it. Exactly. Commit God, real estate, real estate's almost as bad as as the finance industry in terms almost, of incentives. That's quite almost as bad, but that's something else that we'll be able to help with in in our future of self-driving money. Oh, I thought you were going to say something to do with Wealthfront. I was like, ooh, is that an announcement? No, that is no, that is about Wealthfront. So our vision is to uh, automate and optimize your entire financial life. So what do I mean by that? Well, one of our engineers coined the term self-driving money to describe this. And, and by that, what we mean is uh, by early next year, uh, we'll be in a position to enable you to direct deposit your paycheck with us. We will automatically pay your bill, and then we will take the remaining money and route it to the most appropriate financial destination based on your particular situation and goals, which we've intuited from all of those accounts that you link up. So you put your, your personal finances on autopilot, and they'll be optimized in a way that you could never do that. And today, that means uh, put it in, the, if you're saving for a home, we have a, a high yield sa- a cash account that's FDIC insured. 
that pays 2.32%. If it's savings for college, we put it in a tax advantage 529 account. If you're just saving in general, it might be in a taxable investment account, but uh, we'll also offer mortgages. And because we spend so much time and money on automating everything in the process, it allows us to lower the cost of offering financial services so that we can share the economics with our clients. That's how we offer better prices on everything, is our lower cost through automation allows us to share the economics. So you'll be able to get a much more cost-effective mortgage from us in the future. And I'm not just an interviewer here, guys. I'm also a, a user. This is actually a pretty cool product. If you go to disruptors.fm slash wealthfront, I'm going to try to push Andy around a little bit and get you guys a good deal. So we'll figure, we'll figure that out at the end of the episode. Uh, I wanted to ask you now, so you're on the board for, uh, I've seen a bit that you, I've seen that you focused a bit on cancer research, and I'm curious if there's a personal story. Well, yes, my, uh, my wife's best friend died of, of breast cancer and my mom had breast cancer. And so my wife and I have been funding cancer research for quite some time, but I never felt like we were doing it in, in an impactful way. And so when I retired from Benchmark, I wanted to see if I could do something in a more impactful way. And I uh, visited with the heads of a number of premier medical schools. And uh, I also met with a former CEO of one of my portfolio companies who told me about an article that had been written in Fortune, this is going back, God, about 15 years ago, that tried to uh, understand why the war on cancer had such little impact. And the conclusion of the reporter, which I agreed with, was that almost all of the money is going into into incrementalism, that the vast majority of, of biomedical research is funded by the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, a government organization. And uh, amazingly, and, and so almost all the money is going into incremental research that allows you to live for another week because it's low risk and low reward. From a political standpoint, you're not going to be found uh, at fault for doing something that failed because it wasn't likely to fail, but because it had low risk, it had low reward. Now, in venture capital, we know that you have to take risk in order to get reward. And we also know that it's young people who come up with all of the innovations in almost every field. Yet in biomedical research, almost all the money goes to old people doing incremental work. So I wanted to test the hypothesis of whether or not it would make an impact to funnel the money to young people taking more risk for on breakthroughs. And I learned that in the $30 billion NIH budget, only $5 million is dedicated to early career investigators doing high-risk, high-reward research. And that's across all diseases. It's nothing. So we ended up partnering with the premier cancer research foundation that funds young investigators. Their name is the Damon Runyon Cancer Research Foundation. And we created what's analogous to seed funding by a venture capital firm. So we give the investigator uh, $450,000 over three years to test their wacky idea. If it works, then the NIH will give the money. So they act like the venture capitalist in this analogy. There's no equity. There's no economic benefit, just benefit to society. But uh, the NIH will not fund 
what they believe experiments that could fail. Well, why run an experiment if you already know the outcome? <laughs> That's a complete waste of time. And we've been doing this in partnership with Damon Runyon now for 11 years. And uh, one of the things that came out of this program was the CRISPR, which allows investigators to edit DNA. And that has had an unbelievable impact on cancer research. So I'm ecstatic with the outcome of this program. Any thoughts on where we're headed in that direction, both on CRISPR and cancer when it comes to solving cancer and enhancing humans? Again, not my expertise. So I leave that to the experts who are in the scientific advisory. I actually leave it to the researchers who propose the ideas to our scientific uh, advisory board. One of the things that we different, did differently with the scientific advisory board is everyone who sits on that board had to have had a breakthrough at a young age so that they would have empathy for the people writing the grants because most of these scientific advisory boards give money to their elder cronies. So we wanted people who had experienced the difficulty, the hardest money to get is from a young investigator. So we wanted them to have empathy for that. How do we get more crazies taking moonshots like that that can improve the world? You know, there's a limited number of them. I don't think that more fun, a lot more funding leads to a lot more <clears throat> successes. About <clears throat> the reason I feel this way is about, God, how long ago? 20 years ago? Hard to believe it was that long ago. I did some research based on a comment a close friend of mine in the venture business made about the number of successful companies started every year. So back in 1984, my friend Bill Hellman, who was then an associate like I was, who went on to become the managing partner of Greylock Partners, one of the premier venture capital firms, uh, posited that there are probably a dozen great companies a year. And our challenge working for, this was 86, excuse me, our challenge working for a premier venture firm was to see as many of those dozen companies as possible. The share of total companies started was irrelevant. You wanted to have a chance to see the companies that uh, had a chance to be great. And, and so we were debating how many companies we thought that might be. And his estimate of 12 sounded pretty good, but we had no way to test it. And as you can tell from our conversation thus far, I'm a really big believer in, in the scientific method and data that peer review is what proves things, not opinions. So uh, in 1997 or so, Mary Meeker, who was then an internet analyst at Morgan Stanley, wrote a report, a research report that chronicled every IPO, tech IPO since 1980. And I looked at the, the, the data, I looked at the companies and I did a, an analysis that found that 98% of the market cap created from those thousands of companies that went public since 1980 were created by 2% of the companies. Unbelievably Pareto optimal. So only 2% of the companies that went public generated more than 98% of the incremental market cap. And I went on further to find that those companies at some point in their life reached 100 million in revenue. So I wanted to test the idea that maybe a hundred million in revenue at some point in your life was escape velocity. And then I went back to look to see how many companies started nationwide in tech at some point in their life reach a hundred million in revenue. And it was 15 plus or minus three. So my friend Bill Hellman's guess in 1986 
proved prescient. It was really, really close. Adding more funding does not change that number. So in the height of the internet bubble, that didn't change. In uh, today's funding, which is even greater, didn't change that. So I'm not sure there's a necessary minimum amount of funding, but I don't think just throwing a lot more funding at it is going to make a difference. Yeah, it's like time. When you limit time, oftentimes you increase creativity and efficiency. Exactly, exactly. So Andy, you've seen a lot, you've done a lot, you've been through a lot of trends. What technology or trend are you most excited about today and why? Data. I think that data has yet to revolutionize many industries. I mean, Wealthfront is able to deliver a next generation banking service almost exclusively because of data. And now, almost free. And almost free. Now, some people have misused data, but that doesn't mean that everybody has to misuse data. But data can be used for good. It certainly has been in the biomedical research space. So I'm an idealist. I want to use it for good. And I think there are many, many industries that could benefit and many, many nonprofits that could benefit from it. It's like a sword that sharpens. You can make anything more efficient. And that's more or less how data works. Going into it a little bit. So I have to ask you, blockchain, cryptocurrencies, and the future of financial markets, how do you see those all playing together? Well, there's cryptocurrencies as uh, reducers of transaction friction and cryptocurrencies as investments. I don't believe in cryptocurrencies as investments. I think they're speculations. Again, going back to Howard Marks, Howard uh, has a great saying that unless something has a cash flow, it cannot be evaluated as an investment. If it has no cash flow, it's a speculation. It's a gamble. And people don't invest in cryptocurrencies. They gamble on cryptocurrencies, which is why we don't include them in our portfolios, nor do any of the premier university endowments, the best managed pools of capital in the world, include them. So, But that being said, I think that the more friction you take out of a system, the better that it operates. And who's to say that that uh, MasterCard and Visa should earn 2.9% of every transaction? I think cryptocurrencies can play a tremendous role in that. Will they be centralized or decentralized? Will they be government controlled? You know, I think they'll be government regulated for the reasons we discussed earlier. You just don't want to see risks to the financial system. Speaking of risks to the financial system, one more before we jump into the lightning round. WeWork. Yes. Are you at all worried about WeWork and companies like it that are IPOing potentially without the most sustainable of business models and very high valuations given the amount of private cash they can take on? Well, again, you have to look at the unit economics and uh, I don't have any specifics on WeWork, but the lead investor in the company is my old firm, Benchmark Capital. And I do know that they rent that space for a hell of a lot more than what they rent it for. So the unit economics on WeWork are really quite amazing. And the hidden gem in WeWork that nobody gives them credit for, and there's a lot of things that you can find fault with them about, but the hidden gem is that people go there for community. It's not a pure real estate transaction. And that's the part that I didn't understand. There's the brand behind it, like the folks showing up at the Apple store. What I get worried about is when you have a downturn, a lot of those folks no longer can afford those fancy perks. We'll, uh, we'll see. It, that's 
yet to well, be. Well, actually, they're faster. The, uh, I'm, I'm told, I believe, I don't know this for a fact, but I believe that the uh, primary growth driver is enterprise use of the space, not individual or startup. Oh, it it is. There's a there's a good split at a lot of these co-working spaces. I've just when the founder takes seven hundred million and and that's a different issue. So that's a different issue. If we're just talking about the economics of the business, I think if you I mean renting a desk out for a thousand dollars a month is a profitable endeavor, and one is only able to charge those kinds of rents if there's something other than just space. And I don't think they get credit for that. Oh, no, they've done an incredible job building the community and also riding a wave. I want to jump back to the interview itself now. So, Andy, you've been teaching at Stanford for a while. You've dealt with entrepreneurs for forever at this point. What's the what's the one biggest thing you've learned, the one takeaway? One of the great treats of teaching is the rate at which you learn. And I have the enormous honor and pleasure of, have, of, of teaching the case method where we write a narrative about a company that faces a particular dilemma or challenge. And we're fortunate enough to get the protagonist of the case, the person who in particular is leading addressing that dilemma in our class. And uh, I've learned a tremendous amount from the guests that we get to come to our class. I'll give you a couple of examples. One is uh, savor the surprise. Scott Cook, the founder of Intuit, is probably the best product person I've ever met. And he has a philosophy that is a core part of the Intuit culture and a big reason, I believe, for their success, that whenever you introduce a new product, there's always a surprise in the reaction of the market to that product. And in that surprise lies all of the value. So what Scott has learned to do is ignore everything other than the surprise and put all of his effort into reinforcing that surprise in the product features. What would be a concrete example of that? a, a, A fantastic example at Intuit was that Their first product was a product called Quicken. It was a personal finance product. You could think of it as the predecessor to Mint. It allowed you to automate your checkbook. And literally, you'd you'd enter your payments and it would print out checks that you could send to people. But then it stored the check register so you could do budgeting on it and all sorts of things like that. And it grew to be a $100 million, $200 million business and allowed Intuit to go public. Well, one of the surprises they found was that a lot of small businesses were using Quicken to do their bookkeeping, and it was never intended to do that. You wouldn't run a a business out of a checkbook solely, Uh, but traditional accounting software of debits and credits was too complex for the vast majority of mom and pop entrepreneurs at a minimum. So that inspired Intuit to build a really, really easy to use uh, business accounting software, and they call that QuickBooks. Now, Quicken, I think, cost $35. QuickBooks cost 100 At the time, small to medium-sized business accounting software was about $6,000. So this allowed Intuit to sell to the, all those entrepreneurs who just couldn't figure out how to use the five to $6,000 software. And as it grew in features, ultimately it displaced 
that $6,000 software. So even more advanced companies like Wealthfront used it instead of that software. So that's an example of savoring the surprise. Another example that I learned from Meg Whitman in a case that we taught about eBay was look for the good, which is closely related. If something's working, you should double down on it versus fix the things that's not, that is not working. One of the big mistakes is that doesn't feel right. So most people try to fix the problems as opposed to enhance what's working. You get far more growth from in doing experimentation around enhancing what's working than fixing your deficiencies. This is both true for a company and a person. It, it, there's very little benefit to, to improving your weaknesses. Enhancing what you're superb at is how you get ahead in life and excel. Proto principle, 80-20. Double down yeah. on what you're good at. Exactly. Andy, thanks for coming today. What is one question I should have asked you that I didn't before we start to wrap things up? Well, one of the questions that I often get asked is why, why it's very unusual to have started a company after a venture capital career. Most people go the other way. And I'm an oddball that way. So that's the one question you didn't ask, but I think we had a fun conversation nonetheless. Why did you? Because I was drawn to the social good. When I uh, Benchmark is a unique venture firm in that it has a unique organizational structure. It's an always equal partnership, which means that someone who joins today, 25 years after our founding, has an equal economic stake to the people who are already there, even the founders, although all the founders have now retired. The only way to make sure there's enough pie to go around is for the old people who are less uh, active to step aside. So we made a pact when we started the firm that the partners today still embrace, which is if you're not willing to go 110%, you have to step aside. Now, most investment partnerships or professional service partnerships have a founding partner or founding entrepreneur who wants to sort of cut back to half time, but still get their share of the pie. That's not how you maintain a great firm. So we decided that uh, you would have to raise your hand when you were no longer willing to go 110% to step uh, and step aside, but you could invest in future funds. You wouldn't get any equity in the future funds, but you could invest in them. So that means when I go to the, uh, the benchmark office, everyone smiles at me because I'm not soaking up their equity. They like me because they know I'm a good ambassador for the firm. And it allows us to attract fantastic people because it's an intelligence test. Would you join another firm as a junior partner or benchmark as an equal partner? So I reached the point where I loved what I did, but I'd gotten a little fat, dumb, and and uh, and happy and wasn't willing to work as hard. So I opted out and I wanted to focus on social good because I have a life that I never could have imagined that was enabled by the success at, at Benchmark. So I wanted to focus on social good. So I started teaching at my grad school alma mater. I went on a board of trustees of my undergrad alma mater, Penn. And uh, my wife and I started this innovative cancer research funding initiative. Wealthfront came out of some of my work uh, sitting on the Penn Endowment Board, which I now chair. And I didn't want to do it. I felt like I had to do it because making high quality investing and, and high quality banking services available to the average person just seemed like it had to be done. 
And to be honest, if I'd known how difficult it was going to be, I probably never would have pursued it. But I'm really glad at the impact that we're, we're having on society. That's what all the entrepreneurs say. Shit, don't tell me ahead of time because it's going to be <laughs> so bad. But I got it over with and then I did it. Andy, thanks for coming on today. Before you tell people where to find you, hint, hint, disruptors.fm slash wealthfront, where is the one thing you would want to leave folks with? A quote, a call to action, it can be anything. Get better at what you're already good at. I like it. Go for and so, it. So finance is an example. Finance is usually not one of the things that people are superb at. Delegate that to somebody who knows what they're doing. I have definitely delegated a lot of that. I have it set up. Thoughts on thoughts on trying to avoid timing the market and just injecting every week, every month, et cetera. That's what I'm doing in terms of topping that's, up our Wealthfront account. That's what Bert would recommend. That's what the research and the data shows. Where can people find you and learn more about you and what you're doing? Uh, at, at most likely at, at uh, wealthfront.com. Awesome. And again, guys, we're going to try to have, I know we talked a little bit before the program, some type of special bonus for you guys if you go to disruptors.fm slash wealthfront. Thanks for coming on today, Andy. My pleasure. And thanks for tuning in, guys. Hopefully you've enjoyed it. If you have, hopefully it helps you unearth a little bit of the, the finance industry, which is so opaque. And Andy seems like a pretty good guy. So thanks for doing it, Andy. Thank you. And cheers, folks. Bye-bye. Be the change you want to see in the world. That's something I strive towards and fail towards every single day. If you enjoy this podcast, if you think the world could benefit from conversations like this, the greatest compliment you can give us is referring to the disruptors to a friend or talking about us on social media. Please take 30 seconds to do so. It would mean the world to us. And if we're lucky, help us build towards a better world. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for helping us spread the message and have a great day. If you want more of the Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm slash iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.